2.2.772 set unloading jaw. Can't okay enter unknown function. Jaws Professional Patricia from FL Home Bill Tab Skype Trademark Tab Online Tab Walden Tab Search Edit Active Favorite Jim Taylor Patricia from FL Home Phone Number Favorite Alright, we figured out my computer problem. We're gonna call Patricia and we still got the Paul Carnegie interview. Thank you to my mom for getting me through all that. Hope you enjoyed the Fibber McGee and Molly show from 1947. So, let me talk to Patricia off here and find out how she's doing, how much energy she got, and so, stand by. And really wanted no one but me. said I loved you as I should have done. I never told you, darling, you're the only one. Will I go on regretting now my whole life through the things I didn't do? I never held my arms around you long enough I never dared to make my kisses strong enough Will I go on regretting now my whole life through The things I didn't do I was too much afraid Afraid to get burned in a one-way romance So now I'm alone Too late I have learned I never gave love a chance But if there is an answer to my every prayer If you can find within your heart that you still care I'll gladly spend my life just making up to you the things I didn't do
Alt tab. Patricia for tab. Screen options for this call but Alt tab. Skype trademark left tab. Online tab. Walden tab. Search as act favorite. Jim Tail Patricia from app applications. Consent. Invite to enter. Leaving menus. Patricia from unloading job. Can't. Okay. Enter. She is back. I want to explain you what happened to the family because the family knows everything. Because, you know, I don't what? I don't really keep secrets around here. So, you know. What did you tell them? Uh, I haven't told them anything yet. I guess that's pretty damn by. <laughs> you can send all Tootsie Rolls. You can send all Tootsie Rolls. Oh. To yeah, are there any sugar-free Tootsie Rolls out there? You can send all sugar-free. call those people. You can send all free Tootsie Rolls to 2527 Duke Place, Coast of Mesa, California, 92626. Now send them to the adorable one. So if you have <laughs> 35 pounds that you were looking for a good home, at least 35 pounds would be perfect for her. Of what? Sugar-free tootsie rolls. rolls. Yeah. You want me to, I think I will die. But if they're sugar-free. Um, okay. <laughs> Whatever you say. <laughs> That'll work. Oh. Okay. So we are taking calls. Now, oh, I got to tell you what happened. Well, uh, I had been having some script issues, and uh, I figured out what the problem was just before the show, but we haven't had time to fix it. So, because he's been sick all day, he might be awake tonight. So we'll call in, call, Skype him up and at 1 or 2 in the morning, see if he's awake, and we'll fix it for them all. But anyway, when we went in to uh, the Soundforge issue, Air issue, then something else popped up, and I needed mom to come in here and <laughs> give me some virtual tools. So we had to reboot the computer, and when we did that, we saved sound for us, and that's why you heard 20, 30, 40, 50 percent. So we saved the file, we played for the game Molly, and then we called to Patricia. <laughs> Hello there, you're on the air. Uh, good evening, Walden. Good evening, Patricia. Hi, Jim. Hello, Jim. How are you? Well, more of a cough, but what, what was that old gold commercial? Wasn't there something about a cough and a carload or something? I don't remember that one. I remember something else. Oh, I, de- I see I see a, a musical legend passed away this afternoon. Yes, Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry. He was 90. Mm-hmm. I did not notice until about a couple minutes ago. Yeah. Yeah. He had quite a career. <laughs> He's one of the big form records of one of the big... Uh, trendsetters, if not one of the first in rock and roll, to put rock and roll on the map. Things like, you know, he had hits like Maybelline and uh, School Days. I don't mean Euro Golden Rule Days, another song called School Days. Johnny Be Good. Uh, yeah. Roll Over Beethoven. Johnny Be Good. Johnny Be Good. He wrote, he wrote Memphis, Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I didn't realize he was 90. I didn't either. I thought he would be a little younger than that, because that means, to think about it, when he came onto the scene in 1955, he was tw- about 28. <coughs> when you think <coughs> to many music buffs and people who admired him, he only had one number one record on the music charts, and it was by far what many consider his worst record in 1972. Which what was that? My Dingling. He wrote that. Yeah. 
That is one of the funnest songs that were out there. It was just, you waited for the end. You waited for the end, and the end wasn't what you expected. <laughs> I mean, when you think of all the big things he did, the uh-huh. none of those wreck Carol, Oh Carol, Nadine, uh, riding along in my automobile, all those, all those things that he did that were trendsetters, Roll Over Beethoven. I mean, when you think of all those records, that one was the one that made it to number one. Of course, that probably says more about the taste of the American public than it does Chuck Berry. That's true. <laughs> I, I was just thinking, I think now there's, a, I would say, four rock and roll writing from the 50s who are still with us. Well, let's see who might be. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, most of, the, most of the ones we think of are gone. Right, but I think there's four. I would classify four of them. Okay. Where, where was Bobby Brazil? Well, I, I think, he, I, in my mind, he started in 1960. I, I was going by okay. the, the first, you know, when Rock and Roll so hit. Throughout the decade of the 50s, who had a so big hit in the 50s. who would you say, Walden? Well, um, my mind, uh, Joey Lee Lewis. Yeah. Would be one. Sure. Uh, Little Richard would be another. Chubby Checkers. Sure. Fat, yeah, right. Good, it, good choices there. And Fat Domino. Um, and Fat yeah. Domino. Oh, those are the four I can think of. Right. James, who was who the Jimmy or James? Chubby Checker. Chubby. No, no, the backup one. Mm-hmm. Jerry, you said uh, Jim or James? Little I, I, Richard. I said, okay, uh, for Jerry Lee Lewis. Right. Chubby Checkers. Uh-huh. Fat Domino's. Okay. And Little Richard. Little Richard. Yeah, those are the four big ones in my mind from the 1950s. Yeah. And um, you're right. They're, they're all good. And they're all, um, yeah, hopefully they're still may- healthy. Yeah, maybe there's still some others from the 50s. But the other ones I'm thinking like uh, Bobby Rydell, Frankie like Avalon. Those, those I always think like the 60s, like 1960, 61. Right, Frankie Avalon, Bobby Rydell, Fabian, mm-hmm. people like that. Right. Um, of course, you had <coughs> um, a lot of, you know, you, but uh, yeah, Chuck Berry was, was certainly a legend. Yeah. Um, one reason I called today is I got to hear most of William Tell today. You did. Uh, in case Patricia didn't know, on the Metropolitan Opera radio broadcast today, they broadcast William Tell by Rossini, and that is interesting because it demanded not perform William Tell in over 80 years. Walden beat you to the punch on that one. Actually, Jim told me yesterday that he'll have to thank Jim for <gasps> the information. Oh. It's a very oh. long opera. It's over four hours. Mm. I'm mm-hmm. want, I want, in my, in my bucket list, one of the things I want to be done is have Patricia to sing it one, one Saturday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to hear the famous overture at the beginning. Uh-huh. And the announcer did point out that many people remember it as the Lone Ranger theme, at least the last part of the overture. I was telling Walden last night that, and John and Larry that someone I read once said, that an intellectual is someone who hears the William Tell overture and does not think of the Lone Ranger. 
Great line. Hmm. Yeah, that was a good line. That was a good line. Well, I, you know, okay. you know that, that became so enamored with that with that program. That I bet if you ask 99% of the people, if you play just the opening bar, no, I bet 99% of them are not going to say the William Tell Overture. That's true. I would think most new classical music fans, I want to uh, they're coming through movies and things. You know, because a lot of famous music, movie scores are still done with a full orchestra and yeah. scores like that. Of course, when you hear about people like, I guess, John Williams, mm-hmm. I guess, is the most prominent music composer for the last 20, 25 or 30 years or more. And he, it seemed, he seems to score a hit every time. Yeah, and, and let's face it, a big... Uh, classical music station down here in L.A. because part of the film community every every afternoon, especially during they play nothing but f- film scores. That's sort of that's the thing to tribute, you know, tie in classical music and and, and the movies. KUSC, right? Uh huh. Yeah, and they do the opera on Saturday mornings. They right? do. That's why I recorded it this morning. I hope you get a chance to enjoy it later. Hopefully, yes. Um. But it was well done. The orchestration was very good. Um, I didn't understand any of it except what the narrator said was going to be on it, of course. I guess that's one of the things about opera is you have to... Uh, when they've tried to do them in English, the classics, I understand it did not do very well with the audience. You know, in my mind, every time I think of opera, I'm just thinking of my dad. He, he likes to go around sometimes saying, Tori, Adori, those are not... <laughs> yeah, there, there's two that stand out that way, Tori, Adore, and Figaro, Figaro, Figaro. Yeah. Yeah. And there's another one, let's see, what is it? Da, 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 da. Yeah. And I think Hamburger Helper even used that on a commercial once. <laughs> it's public domain a lot of that music so that anyone can use it for anything they want um <coughs> when you hear um when we um, patricia when we think of opera what comes to your mind opera um let me think oh. do you enjoy opera is it hard for you not understanding the language is that an issue with you when you listen to an opera? Not particularly. I listen more to the voices and the music. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? No, it doesn't bother me. <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah. Well, the instrumental music, too, is oftentimes stands out. Did any, of you, did any of you ever take a, a music appreciation class? Yeah, I did once. And what was it like, Jim? Well, we went over the history of the different eras of composing. Like, we went through, like, you know, a lot of the church era, and then we went through the Baroque era, uh-huh. the classical era, and the Romantic era. Like, okay. Baroque would have been people like, I guess, Handel. Okay. And I guess the classical would have been people like Mozart and Beethoven. Right. And romantic is when you begin to have 
music based on stories or legends, like when Mendelssohn did Sleeping Beauty, I mean, Midsummer Night's Dream, and Tchaikovsky did Sleeping Beauty, and other things like that. And we talked about various composers and their lives, and uh, it was a a fun class. And, of course, I have to give the children's record companies of the 50s credit for trying to introduce children of that era to music appreciation. There were the Young People's Label. (coughs) Excuse me. That's okay. That's memorable. Adaptations of Sleeping Beauty by Tchaikovsky and Cinderella by Prokofiev and A Midsummer Night's Dream by Mendelssohn with narration, but you got a chance to hear the music. And there were other records that taught you about instruments, and there was a very, very famous Capitol record in the late 40s and was out in the 50s and 60s called Rusty and Orchestraville. This little boy named Rusty is tired of playing scales on the piano. And when he goes to take a nap in his home, a conductor appears to him and takes him to a place where the instruments talk with a semison, electronic, you know, thing, mm-hmm. to make the instruments talk, but they also play. And you get to your clips of different things like uh, Chopin's Nocturne in E-flat and uh, various violin concertos and the minute waltz by <coughs> Chopin and it was another record to appreciate music and then there was a uh, little golden records uh which was one of mitch miller's enterprises even did children's versions of rogers and hammerstein songs like june is busting out all over in oklahoma so they got children got to hear <coughs> glimpses of the american american songbook mm-hmm. And it was a noble effort. They were done with professional orchestras. and um, Cricket did, although they were very short, they were like eight minutes, but you got the drift. They did versions of the Mikado and the Pirates of Penzant. Mm. Uh, we hear Gilbert and Sullivan. Mm-hmm. And then there was a series that Ron and I are familiar with, a United Artists series of classic literature called Tail Spinners for Children. We've talked about these before, where they were dramatized versions of Robin Hood and William Tell and Robinson Crusoe. Mm -hmm. And as bridge music, they used classical music between scenes. (coughs) And they were very well acted (coughs) and very well done. Did you ever ever take a music appreciation class, Patricia? Say that again, please. Have you ever taken a music appreciation class. No, I had my phone turned down because <laughs> you're usually loud. And you know, um, no, I did not. I think I I, I I have I have not oh, you know, I'll turn Jim down for a second. I have never uh, taken a a classical music appreciation class and I would like to. That's something I feel I really like classical music. I, I, I never had any kind of appreciation course. I had a crazy woman stand in front of us and said, who can sing bass? I don't mean low. Who can sing bass? Traditional, absolutely 
space. Sadly, in a lot and, of cities, radio stations, unless they are non-commercial, have given up on classical music in a lot of cities. They have. They have. You have a good one here. You have a good one in L.A. I don't know if you have a good one in Florida, Patricia. You have a classical music station in Florida, Patricia? We do. We have um, the... PBS, <laughs> no, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's PBS, mm-hmm. public broadcasting. Um, I get all my my um, numbers mixed up or my letters mixed up. Mm-hmm. Yes, they they broadcast a really nice lineup of classical music. I haven't found it anywhere else, and they certainly don't do that all day. But NPR, is that what they said? Before, you yep. had a very good adult standard station in Florida that plays Sinatra and Como and all of that. And where is it located? Well, I don't remember you told me about it. I think you would drive you would drive me up north. I think you found it while you were driving to your your library assignments, Patricia. And I found one. Uh huh. Hmm. I don't remember the call letters you mentioned it once. And as it hmm. changed formats, which wouldn't surprise me. That's true. Um you know, we have a good classical station here. There's a good one in Sacramento. Um, and uh, like a, our, our station here even does a sacred concert on Sunday mornings where you get to hear Haydn and some of the people that wrote sacred music in addition to classical music. Yeah, KUSE oh does my that. goodness. KUSE does that from 6 to 9 Saturday, Sunday morning. Right, and then we have a show called Baroque by the Bay from 9 till 11. So we've got, and we also have the NPR feature from the top. Mm-hmm where talented young musicians perform. Um, it's a good show. Um, by the way, have you had a chance yet, Walden, to check out that Massachusetts station? Nope, I have not. I've been working on reps. I've been oh, working until yeah. 4 in the morning the last three days trying to get reps together in five weeks. So. Well, you're, you'll get, if anyone can get it done, you can. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. So. It'll be interesting to hear all that when it when it uh, comes on. Yep. Looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to see they have a meeting tomorrow, so I gave them a list of things they need to get figured out. So hopefully they'll find... Meeting tomorrow, huh? They have to find, see if they have find enough bodies. I said, you need eight sound effect people. Are you going to be doing that by Skype? And No. Uh, I, just gave them, I just gave them my brain. So I put, okay. I put it all down on paper. <laughs> so they'll have to handle the meeting. They're having a meeting by themselves, and I imagine I'll hear about it Sunday night. Uh, 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 you know, that kind of thing. I said, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I told you. I, I, well, I did. Say if any, well, I'm going to have to leave because of my voice. All right, I wanted Jim. to acknowledge William Tell and the other things, and I'll be starting on the, the two books. I'm just trying to debate. Whoever to go by the same author, I'm debating on Teddy Roosevelt first or Star Spangled Men. Whatever you choose will hmm. be great, Jim. Yeah. By the way, what is the term spang? I always hear about the Star Spangled Banner. I know what star is. I know what banner is. What is spangled? As far as I, that's a great question. As far as I know, it's something that shines brightly, like maybe the stars. I don't know. Let me see. <sighs> oh boy, you you you're the first one tonight. Jim, you got us to do some homework. Okay. <laughs> no, I didn't. I did some homework for somebody. 
Wait a minute. Here's, you know, yeah, it's one of those things you've heard the term, and I've never even thought about That's what the true. term actually meant. That's true. All right, spangled definition. Let's see what we got here. Spangled. Spangled, covered with spangles. You know, those are shiny little mm -hmm. doodads. Yep. Or other small sparkling objects. Okay. So, okay. I was almost there, wasn't I? You were brilliant. Yeah, that was pretty quick. <laughs> Quicker, I guess, okay. than trying to figure out. Um, what was the most difficult question a listener ever gave you on yesterday, USA? Do you remember? Whoa. Oh. Some of them have been really tough. Yeah. What do you think, Walden? Um... I don't think we have, I don't think we've taken on what's his name uh, the theory of relativity yet. I think that we've been able to avoid that particular topic. Yeah. So yeah. Harwood can really get into some deep uh, things that I don't know about. He's got a background. He, he seems to have a technical understanding of things. And sometimes when Harwood oh, yeah. when Harwood starts explaining it. <coughs> He doesn't consider himself brilliant, but I really think he is. He's one of the most brilliant people that calls in. Mm -hmm. I think one of the smartest people who calls in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I people think who call in. Yeah. Everybody, everybody who calls in, have, you, you all have your uniqueness. Well, they all have ta different talents and diff yeah. different memories. Like mine might be radio. Yep. Ron's might be radio and popular, you know, rock music. and roll music. Yep. Uh, Curtis Literature. Yeah, he's our literature expert. Call about literature. Yeah, uh, and uh, Harwood, he gets into the engineering and technical aspects. It, you all have your area of expertise. In what is Mr. King's? Mr. Who? Mr. Uh, the one called Dave King. King from Rhode Island. Yeah, King. I, I think he's a showman. I really think he's a, uh, he's a showman in, in a lot of ways. What I mean, he's a, he's an entertainer, but he's yeah. able to do. On stage and personality, I just think he's a... Well, like when Kurt calls, mm -hmm. his, his can be radio or it can be books. Definitely literature. He, he loves Definitely literature. literature, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, what was the hardest question we ever got? Hardest question? The, the hardest question, Jim asked. Yeah, would it be that you can think of. Can you think of one that just really st st stumped you? Yeah, and I'm I'm trying to think. One night I was on, in I would say hello in between, looking for a particular piece of information that I couldn't even find on the internet. Yeah. Huh. I mean, I remember that night, but I don't remember what I was searching for. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it was page after page after page, and I kept putting in different search words, and it was. It was agonizing. <laughs> not only that I didn't know well, the answer, well, but I couldn't find the answer. When you, when you don't know, for example, the spelling of something. Yeah. Well, in my case, I have certain areas. Yes, everybody, I don't know everything. I have certain areas that I'm not, I have not really studied, like, um, like the galaxy and stars and, you know, all that uh, stuff. So like art, I wouldn't know, because cause, you know I have, I have no reason to pictures and mm -hmm. paintings. Like I could read a biography, say of Picasso, and there have been some that have been recorded. Mm -hmm. But understanding what he did, not not looking at 
the painting or the statue. The mm. narrator could explain it to me, I suppose, mm. but without looking at the statue, I wouldn't be able to, you know, to grasp what he what he accomplished. Like uh, loose, I could understand because I, you know I know magazines and papers somewhat about stuff like that, or a uh, like a sculpture, a, uh, a sculptor, a painter, mm -hmm. th things you know the visual arts. I wouldn't be able to really do objective, say, uh, understanding of it, mm -hmm. so knowledge of it. Mm -hmm. If it's something I don't follow, I don't pursue knowledge of it. Patricia, what about you? What's, what, what is your, I'm what, thinking. What do you want to work on over the next 50 years of your life to become Over the next 50 years? Yeah. Well... I don't look that far ahead. I know, but I'll give you a little wipe. I have, I'll give you a I have to wipe. clean up all the messes I created before I, <laughs> I advance. So, there anything uh, in your life that you want to learn? Yeah. You want to learn? Yeah. Besides Braille. Besides, yeah, yeah, boy, I was thinking about that this week. <laughs> huh. Have you ever thought about, and of course we've talked about this sometimes, have you ever, and, well, and of course, the, who knows how the publishing world is now, have you ever thought about writing a book about awful radio shows, sort of an encyclopedia of those shows that <laughs> that were not, I mean, and of course, I guess the problem is, well, we love it. Would a publisher understand what you were trying? Well, I know one who would publish it. Bear Manor? Of course. Yeah. They would publish it. <laughs> because, you know, there, there, there is no greater authority. There is no greater authority in that in that subject matter than Patricia. I would claim she's the world authority on the most awful radio shows of all time. There is no doubt. Well, she's people have written books on bad movies, right? Yes. Yeah. The ten worst movies of all. I mean, I don't remember the yep. author, but or, or they give out the the uh, Raspberry Award or some of those, you know, stuff every year. I think we can crown Patricia queen of <laughs> of awfulness in terms of radio. Okay, How did the idea come about in the first place? Yeah, there you go. Patricia. How did it come about? Uh-huh. How, How did the idea come about? You know, Walden, it was something you and I were talking about one night, but I can't remember what. Mm -hmm. And I think it was you who said, how about an awful show? Mm-hmm. And I thought, mm, yeah, maybe, <laughs> or maybe I said it, whatever. It, it just happened. Well, I'm still amazed at all the things you have found that that, that oh, are reference. <laughs> Finding the things is, is a challenge in itself, isn't it? It's a what? In Finding the show. Finding the show oh. is, a, is a talent by itself. What a look. Oh, my gosh. Well, my ears are talented anyway. <laughs> Just, yeah, I've got many hundreds of that still have to be screened. Dunning or anywhere else. I, and I guess a lot, I, I guess, of course, the Internet has made it a lot easier than it would have been 30 years ago when you had to buy tapes from dealers. Yeah, so oh, my gosh, yes. oh, my gosh, yes. Oh, my gosh, yes. You know, yeah, the, um, isn't all, archive.org mm -hmm. has two or three files that are listed alphabetically, and it's called singles or doubles. And when you get down to a single show that's available, 
there's often a reason why there's only one that survived. So I pick on them, and occasionally I'll come up with one that is, may I call it dreadful? Well, once in a while you'll pick one that people know, but that a particular episode was bad. You, there was a mysterious traveler, of course, and it was that infamous suspense show, Weekend at the Glebes. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, they're shows that people either have not heard of or they were auditions or tryouts mm-hmm. never made the air. Yeah, the tryouts or the auditions are great. Yeah. They are just great. Why advertisers mm-hmm. never bought them, I guess you can. Um, but 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 if anyway, that the, the Internet has made it a lot easier to find than it used to be. May I ask a brilliant question of the panel? Okay. <laughs> and I will give you a brilliant answer. What? Why are so many awful shows been released? In other words, wouldn't you think the producer director at the here the finished project says that is so awful? Why should I spend the money putting it on the air? Well, I don't think anyone <laughs> deliberately sets out to make an awful show. No, I mean, no, and I don't know if they had the ability to do anything other than home recordings. If the audition didn't go anywhere, they broke the mold, and that was the end of that. But people recorded this stuff, and I think that's how we got so many awful auditions. And, 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 and you know, the internet works in advertising agencies and syndicators. and. But, mm-hmm. but some of these series that Patricia have, connect, have had a, sometimes a, a run of 13 weeks or a uh, a year or yes. so, and I'm asking, right. why, I'm asking why. Why do you think they let them go that far before I they met their death? Well, I often, I often wonder that myself, and I go to OTRR, and periodically I'll, I'll do that, and I'll pick a letter and go through every single item on the list. I'll pick S, for example, and, I'm, you know, there's always a bunch of S's out there, but... I listen to the ones that sound a little weird in the title. <laughs> and sometimes they're really good, and sometimes I hit the bullseye. <laughs> well, the two best really sources that I found that are interesting, not necessarily for awful shows, but for show information, one, of course, is the Radio Gold Index. Mm-hmm. Other oh, one yeah. is a site called the Digital Deli. Yes, I've heard of that. I don't... I, I did visit that one time, and it seemed, from to my memory anyway, it seemed like it was difficult to navigate. Well, the Digital Deli is interesting because they have a lot of logs where you get the episode titles, and they will even mm-hmm. quote from the newspapers at the time, say shows from the 50s. Uh, mm-hmm. They might give the newspaper account of what time the show was on, and if there's a review in the paper, it might quote a line from it. Yeah. Certain shows. Mm. Um, but the gold index is fascinating in to find out just how many shows there were. I mean, just going through his list of the names of shows. Mm. It's amazing to think how much people love to do research and we have benefit from it. Agreed. Yeah. Well, Dunning said... You know, when he did the second book, and he probably felt the same way on the first book, that 
you know, he, he did say in your interview with him that he had to, that um, when the second book was published, he had to leave some series out of the book for space. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it would be and interesting to see what I'm surprised are not in there. Now, Alex McNeil has written a book called Total Television. And that, they're, 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 Tim Marsh and Ken Brooks, or Jim Brooks, uh, Marsh and Brooks, I don't remember the first names, did a book, a directory of primetime TV. But Mr. McNeil's Total Television, and it was published various editions, it may be online now, not only covers primetime, but daytime, Saturday mornings, specials. It's the definitive television reference guide. Total television. Yeah. Um, thousands of shows listed. Um, when they premiered, a brief over some 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 shows get more space than others. But he will he will mention you know the the premiere date, the termination date, the general plot line of the show if it was a drama or mm-hmm. a comedy. Sometimes ca- mostly cast members, but total television. If you want to do a television book, and I guess Malton's the best source for movies, right? Motion pictures. <laughs> we're we're out of my league when it comes to movies. Yeah, I, well, I, I never, almost never. You know, watch I got a movie. my parents Malton's movie book because they wa- did watch movies on television. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's a quick reference guide for when you want to find out just basically what a given movie was about. It's, and, of course, there are Leonard Malton's opinions. What I wonder is, has he had time to watch all of these movies? I thought he has a team that sort of helps him now. Huh? I, I think they have a team that helps him now. I don't know. At the beginning, he probably did all by himself. But eventually, as busy as he is with entertainment tonight. Yeah, and, I think he got a team that he works with. Yeah. But he generally gives just a quick overview of a movie, you know, the cast and the overview. And he does mm-hmm. some things like I do with books, you know, the stars. He gives them their stars. Um, and I don't think every movie ever made is in his book. I think no, it's ones no, that you see on TV. Some people upset because new movie coming. Eventually, he has to let some of the older ones out. <gasps> because, you know, the publisher only allows the book to go so far, so big. Do you think you'll eventually put it online? I think eventually, sure. That, would that might sense. be a way where you can get everything, mm-hmm. you know, listed. Maybe we can get Patricia. Well, yeah, I to, hope so. Maybe we can get Patricia mm-hmm. a job so she can watch movies for a living. What do you think? Oh, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> it's more fun. It is more fun, isn't it, Patricia, to do the... If you had a choice between television, movies, or radio, it's more fun to review the radio shows, isn't it? I agree, yes. Yes, indeed. Because movies, you know, are, well, movies are movies, mm-hmm. and you like some better than, and TV, and uh, you said once to me uh, several years ago that you much, radio as, a, as an entertainment medium, so now since you've discovered it, is far more satisfying than television ever was. Absolutely. It really is. It, it's got such color in it because we're allowed to do what we want with it. And it still and amazes about me the to this day hmm? that none of the attempts to revive radio since 1962 
And there have been some noteworthy attempts, mm-hmm. Theater 5, the CBS Mystery Theater, Sears. While they were all noble, none of them have lasted. And the public just never seemed to want to hear radio and drama anymore. Yeah. Does that surprise you? No. Because of the age of the people, um, and I, right now it even includes grandmas and grandpas and anybody who's alive, they do with the boxes and the iPods and the, you know, it's all electrical, and they like fast. They like fast. If they haven't seen anything that they want on an Internet page in three seconds, they're on to another one. Well, my brother and I and were I'm... talking about, you heard the news that, is it Barnum and Bailey, or they're closing the circus, if I understand yes, it they right? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And my brother said today's today's kids, my brother and I were talking about it on the phone, today's kids, a circus would be very boring compared to video games. Oh, sure. Oh, my goodness, yes. And one of the things that they cited in the closing statements about the closing is that they are not attracting new customers. So does that mean the circus? Are there other circuses the cir- still in business? The Shriners? Don't they have a circus still? What they're planning to do, you'll start seeing small groups, not the yeah. big spectacular, because it's, it's a logistic nightmare to find places that will hold the tents and everything, you know, so... Even when they move them to coliseums, I guess. Yeah, Randall. so... so and you know that with all that equipment they move, they gotta be able to pay the bills. Yeah. To, to do that, and so they're, they're thinking you'll see really small groups go out. Well, how about things like rodeos, and how about the ice cafes and ice follies? Are those things still big, or they've sort of faded from? You don't hear them. If they're still out there, but you'll hear them promoted in the general public. Not the way they used to be. No. <coughs> rodeos. No, I, I Are think... rodeos still popular? I don't know about that, but the animals in general have been under more consideration than ever before, and that's why the elephants were going. Um, So rodeo, I mean, that's a brutal, (laughs) that is just brutal, between the horses and the bulls and the steer. Pardon? When when the Bottom and Bailey Circus announced, weren't the elephant attraction decided to retire. No, not Barnum and Bailey. It was Ringling that's okay. closing. I'm glad you're there. Ringling Brothers. Well, Barnum and Bailey were probably Ringling Brothers, right? Right. Okay. Anyways, when... When Ringling Brothers... Look. <laughs> when Ringling Brothers announced that they were closing, one of the interesting things, they put, once they retired the elephants, the attendance really dropped. The elephants were a big attraction to people. Yes. Yes, sir. yes. They've always been. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who wants to see a poor elephant dressed in a tutu? You know, they're the smartest people. It, it's, oh, dear. But to, you know, uh, remember, you know, I can remember they used to take us to the circus in school occasionally. Yeah. Uh, some of the schools I was in. The Shrine Circus was always very popular. Right. Um, but, I, but the public... And I guess the thing is, 
boring. People get bored. I'm, I'm just amazed. I can remember my one of the places I used to live in when the daughter of my landlord got a book, and I don't even remember what book it was. She was about eight or nine, and she got a book that a neighbor or a relative gave her. She said, oh, boy, a book. <laughs> she, I don't know what she wanted, but... But it wasn't, you know, I'm sure if it was a video game, it would have excited her more. But the thing about the game is, once you play the game so many times, wouldn't it become boring, too, just playing the same game over and over? Well, nowadays, Jim, the new video games, Yeah. If they don't they don't have the same um, scenario. It changes scenarios all the time. Oh, so we can buy one game. Yeah. And then, like a week later, it'll be a different scenario. No, a lot of them are now on. I on you know, you hook up to the internet. So every time, like you could play the same game four or five days every day, it'll always be a different scenario. Oh, um, but the home video games, the ones that aren't on the internet, those can can only go so far without repetition, right? Well, I assume so, Jim. But what? But I think most of the younger generation that I know that um, they're playing thing is generally hooked up to the internet, so it's, everything is new every time they go on. That's why they said uh, so many people play video games eight hours a day. Yeah. Oh, I can remember I can remember Walden when, when Pac-Man and yep. those early video games came out. Donkey Talk. Like 80 or 81. 81, I remember Donkey Talk, all those games, yeah. Oh, I can remember Ira Fistel mm-hmm. was just in total... A caller was calling him defending video games, and Ira was talking about, you know, how, how well, he wasn't too much of a fan of video games. And a caller said, well, you learn coordination, you learn finger, you learn eye, you learn eye exercises, and, and that didn't impress Ira too much. <laughs> well, we know Patricia's a video game player, aren't you, Patricia? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I guess if people enjoy it, but it, but it's sad that it's affected other aspects of the culture, those of us that like other things. Mm-hmm. I guess if it doesn't sell or it doesn't catch on with the public, it goes away. Economics is a driving factor to a lot of that things, you bet. Yeah. Well, anyway, I have to, my voice is beginning All right, to, Jim, we'll talk to you next week. <coughs> so it's always a pleasure, Patricia. I'll keep you posted on things. Thank you. Sure thing. Bye-bye. <laughs> You have a good week, Jim. Thanks for calling. The adorable one is here. She's here. Yes, she is. She, she, she's here. Sorry. Okay, it's time for your question, Walden. All right, my dear. Should we take any more calls or, or what? Mm, no, it's getting kind of late. That's what I thought. And I want to make sure you get all your questions with the least amount of stress. And we got my inter- we got your interview coming up next. That's true. All right, family. Here, here she is, the keeper of the question. The, the, the keeper of the question. The we always give, when, except when I forget, <laughs> one of the questions, or two, or three. I think I have done, did I just miss three of them one night? I don't recall that ever happening. Oh, Walden, you know I have missed some. And I'll go, I'll say, <laughs> Walden will say, oh, I'll take my geography question. And I'll look and say, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll take my first lady question. I don't think so. (laughs) So so 
I think I've got them all tonight. All right. Okay. So are we ready? We've got a Stump Walden question, mm-hmm. a brain teaser, your colonial question, your presidential quote, your presidential question. Oh, my goodness, we've got a lot of answers on that one. Your baseball question and your geography question. Seven of them tonight, everybody. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We got the whole set. Is that the whole mess? Yep. That's the whole mess. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Okay, which of that mess would you like first? I would like to try the colonial question, my dear. Your colonial question. Ooh, this one, yeah, I I hunted for this one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. How long was the Stamp Act in force? Oh, 1754 to 1756 maybe. So I would say three years. Twelve months. Oh, even shorter. Wow. Uh-huh. It was, um, the Stamp Act was passed by the Brits, of course. Uh, excuse me, the British. I, you know, I, I abbreviate everything. I'm sorry. Um, the Stamp Act was passed on March 22, 1765. Oh, okay. And the British government repealed it March 1776. Wow. They really got stung by the Patriots they on that did. one. They did. They did. So they, they did something smart and backed off it. No, I don't think it was soon enough. <laughs> I think the only thing that could have rescued them on this thing was not passing it at all. But anyway, okay, so you got your colonial question. My presidential quote. Your presidential quote. Okay. I am going to tell you a presidential quote and then... Never mind. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what it, what it goes to in a minute. Okay. Who said, the fact that my 15 minutes of fame has extended a little longer than 15 minutes is somewhat surprising to me and completely baffling to my wife. <laughs> I have, an, I have a, a sarcastic answer to this one. Go for it. Uh, but Franklin Delano Roosevelt. <laughs> I don't think so. I think she was. <laughs> I think she was very politically astute. Of course, she was that, but really quite involved in the sense that she never turned down anything that was historical. She just, and she loved politics. So, I don't know. No, <laughs> never mind. That wasn't the answer. Oh, gee, I'm sorry. Ah. Abraham Lincoln. Nope. Harry S. Truman. Nope. Lyndon Johnson. Nope. That's four of them, so I'll let you say I'm done. Go ahead. You're finished. Yes. With Barack Obama. Wow. I never. I don't remember were, that one at all. Wow. Okay. I don't remember hearing that one, but he did have a good sense of humor. So it wasn't surprising to me that he said this. Um, All right, so while we're talking about the 15 minutes of fame, who said, in the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes of fame? Benjamin Franklin. No, (laughs) you're so good. You're really, I mean, you're hitting really good names. 
but it's not. Levon. I put in two words on that. I'll have to take them out. In the future, huh? Go ahead. Uh, Okay. In the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. Winston Churchill. No. I don't know. This this, it's not even a political answer. It was Andy Warhol. Oh, okay. and I don't know what the context was, but that was one of his famous sayings. In the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. And that was it, that was the relationship to the 15 minutes of fame that um, Barack Obama talked about. So that's fun. Nice. That was fun. Yeah. Okay, what's next? My first lady whatever. Your first lady whatever. Okay, let us see here. First, now wait a minute. I know I've got her in here. Just a minute. Um, um, your presidential question. And I know I have something for her. Colonial question, presidential question, presidential quote. Wait. Well, then I don't think I have her in here. Oh, and I thought I remembered all of them. I have to go back to school. I'm sorry, you don't have a first lady anything in here. <laughs> okay, what? well, you can read me something from who wrote the article and who wrote a newspaper column during 1936. A newspaper column? Starting in 1936. Um, I would say Franklin P. Adams. Nineteen thirty-six. What? 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 Uh, what we're talking about? Uh, female? What woman? A woman? Oh, uh, first lady. Oh, nineteen nineteen thirty-six. That yeah. would no thirty-five. Yes, thirty-six would be Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh, you're so good. There's, there's our there's except, our first lady. There's except, our first lady. Except yeah, she had one show at the end of the year in nineteen thirty-five. What can I say? What does that mean? I know. She did it. But 1936 is the usual year Mm -hmm. that you hear that she started her column. Right. And um, I left off with you in March, though. I have to, yeah, have to get going on April. But the listings that I found, the actual columns that I found, have one straggler from 1935, not 1936. So now you can rewrite U.S. history. Yeah, well. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well. Okay. What else? Well, how about my baseball question? Your baseball question. Okay. Davey Winfield, Hall of Fame outfielder, playing for the Yankees at the time, was arrested. What was he arrested for? By... Throwing a baseball and hitting a seagull. You're absolutely right. There was a big competition back and forth about was it an accident or did he do it on purpose? And there are a lot of people who said they did it on purpose. This was up in Toronto, Canada, I think, everybody. Was it? Yeah. 
Okay. Well, the manager, Billy Martin, he said the Yankees. Did they play in Canada? Yeah, they 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 would play the Toronto Blue Jays that day. Uh huh. Oh my goodness! I did not know that. Anyway, Yankees Billy manager, Yankees manager Billy Martin questioned whether or not Winfield possessed the necessary accuracy to hit the bird. He said, "Cruelty to animals." That was the first time he hit the cutoff man all year. <laughs> So I don't know who prevailed on that. Um, claimed that he did the bird. Nope. They didn't tell me what the answer was. Do you know who? What what the answer was? Did he do it deliberately and get fined or? No, and never knew they deliberate. resolved that. I think it pretty much now more people think it was an accident. Oh. Yeah. I don't know. I think he was pretty mean. <laughs> <laughs> when I say mean. Um, you know, the, well, he was an outfielder. A pitcher I might give credit for picking something out of the sky. I don't, I don't know. What do you think? I don't see why he would try to hit a, a little bird, but that's just me. Oh. oh, yeah, you're too kind to do these kinds of evaluations. <laughs> <laughs> you're funny. Okay, what else? My brain teaser. Your brain teaser. Do you know I sat and pondered over this and pondered over this, and I finally looked at the answer, and I slapped my head upside and said, oh, I should have known that. Okay. The brain teaser. A boy is walking down the road with a doctor. While the boy is the doctor's son, the doctor is not the boy's father. Who is the doctor? These questions are brought to you by Yesterday USA and Walden Hughes. I can't believe May you I read that again. May you read that one again for me, please? Of course, of course. A boy is walking down the road with a doctor. While the boy is the doctor's son, the doctor is not the boy's father. Who is the doctor? Read that part where the boy is the doctor's son, mm -hmm. but the doctor is not the boy's father, right? That is correct. That is absolutely word perfect. Okay, yes. so, so the boy was walking down the street with two doctors. One of them gets to be happy. No, it just said, no, it, no, it just said a doctor. I'm sorry. Here we go. Weasel words. <laughs> One was his, uh, was his foster father. No. One was his adopted son. No. Um, one, the doctor disowned the boy during the walk. Excuse me? Boy, I love the ones you come up with. <laughs> <laughs> well, be content that we should both have known this. <laughs> Neither one of us did. Are you ready? I'm ready. The doctor the boy was walking with was his mother, who was a doctor. Oh. See, you went through, and I thought, oh, gee. Oh, gee. <laughs> you too. 
Oh, you too. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, what's next? Um, my presidential question. Your presidential question. Jeez, I hope I have it. <laughs> okay, I have it. I have it. Um, see, I've got two really good ones. Okay, why did Ulysses S. Grant enter West Point Military Academy under a fraudulent name? Couldn't get in under his own name. Well, he didn't want to use. I guess no, <clears throat> no, no. It was not his fault. They screwed up his ID card. Darn close. I don't know, my dear. You got me. Well, he entered West Point Military Academy as Ulysses S. Grant, rather than his birth name of Hiram Ulysses Grant. It said, after the Congress, oh, here it is, after the congressman who wrote his recommendation, which has to happen, um, wrote his name down wrong, rather than risk not being accepted, Grant simply changed his name and was known as Ulysses S. Grant <laughs> afterward. Isn't that fun? And here's another little piece of information. What did the S stand for? Sam. Sam. No. <laughs> Where did that one come from? Maybe you better not tell me. <laughs> you, okay, Uncle tell me. Sam. No, what, what, what's the answer? Oh, oh, no. Mm -mm. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, many people claim that the S stood for Simpson, his mother's maiden name. Most his historians agree, however, that the S was simply a middle initial and didn't stand for anything. Uh, like Harry Truman. That? How about that? Yep. Yeah. Good old. Yeah. yeah. Oh, gee, I had three really good ones. So I'm all set for next week. You okay, just, what have you, we got left? You yeah. just got to work on the rest of the category. Well, if my stump wallings on my, uh, were on our last one. We are? Yeah. Oh, gee. Oh, no, you get your geography question, too. Okay. All right? I'm ready. Yes. Stump Walden. On Father Knows Best, what kind of work did Jim Anderson do? He's an insurance salesman. Oh, gosh. I lost you on that one. Wow. <gasps> okay. And then we've got your geography. Uh-huh. Okay. Name where, three where, out of... Where was Central City located? In Central America. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> they must have said it at one time or another. I don't know, but it just, just got, got thinking about... Uh, about the oldest family. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Illinois wound up the winner in many of them. So I wonder if there was special, uh, something special about Illinois that, uh, or Indiana rather, or both of them. Illinois primarily. Was there something special about Illinois that made it so attractive? Well, my guess is because it was one of the radio hubs, so people probably thought it thought that way. Well, that makes sense. Okay. You always make sense. Thank you, my dear. Scary. Okay, your, your geography question. I don't even know if it's fair, but I think it is. 
Name three of the five Great Lakes. Okay. The Ontario. Mm-hmm. The Michigan. Correct. Um, the Erie. Very good. That's your three. Do you uh, want to go for the other two? Um, hmm. I probably know them once you hear them. Yeah, um, and, and it's hard. They're, they're two we don't hear like, often. Like, yeah. like Indian names kind of thing? There might be one uh-huh. that... One is Huron, and I would think that I that would, might be an Indian name. Yeah, I would not have remembered that one. And the other one? Uh, Superior. Yeah, Superior I might have gotten if I was... Mm-hmm. But you did. You answered the question. I am so proud of you. So, you got your geography question. Mm-hmm. You got your baseball question. Mm-hmm. Um, you got your presidential question. Oh, no, presidential, no, you didn't get that one. So that's one for me. <laughs> <laughs> I got my stump Your presidential, yeah. your presidential quote. You got that. Um, I got, I'm, I'm only two fingers here. <laughs> <laughs> your colonial question. Oh, colonial question and your brain teaser. And, well, Father Knows Best you got. Yeah, so I got, so three, I got three out of six or three out of seven. I'm almost three out of six. That's 50%. That's not Let me bad. See how many. Did I? <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> Your stump Walden question, brain teaser, colonial question, presidential had, quote. I think he had six tonight, and I got three of them. Presidential quote, presidential question, um, baseball, and geography. It was seven. Well, yeah, which then, okay, then we, we, okay, so we got three out of seven. So that's... That's not quite passing, but that's least in the running. Oh. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes, you, you are. <laughs> you won, Patricia. You're the big grand, oh. grand oh. Papua. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's, here's your Snoopy question. Charles Schultz had a nickname that was given to him in childhood. And it was given to him by an uncle. What was the nickname? Spike. No. Hey, you? No. You'll recognize it as yeah. soon as I say it. Those little characters in the comic strips, and uh, maybe start with the letter P. No. Hmm. I don't know. Sparky. You knew that. I know you knew that. I don't know if I would have called that. That's very good. That's very good. Well, if I saw a multiple choice, as they gave me to consider, um, you know his his 
pet name was or his nickname was not Snoopy. It was not Fletcher. It was not Chippy. So I thought, well, let's fly with just Sparky. Okay? Very good. Okay. And Winnie the Pooh. And then you can have the microphone back. Winnie the Pooh. And you have to tell me if I already gave you this one. I just thought it was cute. When looking at your two paws, as soon as you have decided which one of them is the right one, then you can be sure the other one is left. I have no doubt. That's a wonderful one. Uh, Isn't that cute? Oh, he was such such wisdom. (gasps) Okay, that's that's all the trouble I can get into for tonight. Would you have been happy the men to have Pooh as your as your bio as your one your one your credits and your as an author? Um, no, I'd like to hug him and (laughs) go to bed with him (laughs) at night. Do you know there have been several sequels, not by Snoopy's uh, or Winnie the Pooh's daddy, but um, so somebody out there thinks they can write, and they're actually pretty good. They match up with the personality very well. So that's one thing I'm hoping to get someday. I think there's somebody who's re- read all the Winnie the Pooh books and or things and them very dramatically. I think it'd be fun to have those sometime. Yes. Maybe that's what we should ask Kelly is when her dad did the Winnie the Pooh record. <gasps> Good thinking. Good thinking. If, she, if she's going to come back, you, you yeah. describe her, and she certainly sounds like it yeah. in her mm-hmm. response to you, that she's very bright and bubbly and yes. outgoing. Um, I think if we only had two questions, we could fill up the interview time. So... I will add my thoughts, and I love Winnie the Pooh, um, and see what she likes text on to. Yeah. So, so yeah, thoughts, I think that... Put your thoughts down on paper. We'll send it to her Monday morning, so... Okay, and then let her pick the ones, maybe. Yes. Yeah. That would be good. And then I have to get you some questions about Sam. Mm. Yes, uh-huh. Whenever you're ready for that. What's his last name? Crackhead. Craighead? Craighead, uh-huh. C-R-A-I-G-H-A-E-A-D. Sounds right. Because <laughs> um, I called him Craig in my notes, which yeah. is, you know, <laughs> that is not the right thing. Anyhow, okay, let's, it's coming up here. Oh, my poor dearie. Uh Patricia will be with there you everybody next Saturday night, the last Saturday of the month. I didn't okay. Hear, I did not hear Shiver to realize that we're almost one third of the year done. Well, I, I really don't want to talk about it. <laughs> so that probably bit. protects me. <laughs> uh, you know, this is just awful. My week has been so trashed. You know, I woke up at 7 o'clock one day. You know, I really haven't felt well. And I woke up at 7 o'clock, and this was a couple of weeks ago when I had a poopy day, too. And I just slept and slept and slept, and I heard the phone ring, and it's Barbara. She usually calls me at night. And I said, is everything okay? She says, sure. (laughs) It was her regular time at 7 o'clock-ish. I was still asleep. Well, you get catching up, my dear. 
that's what it is. And I looked at the clock and I said, you know, when the phone rang, I looked at the clock and said, my gosh. I talked to Barbara. I said, you know, I don't remember that 7 o'clock is this dark. <laughs> she said, do you know it's 7 o'clock at night? <laughs> I said, mm, I do now. Mm, I do now. So, okay. I'm finished. All right, my dear. Well, thank and then what? Thank you for being with me. Oh, thank you for having me and bailing me out. <laughs> oh, it's true. No. You remembered Blackstone. No, I was just lucky. His real, his, his real name, yeah, his real name was Harry, yeah. but I couldn't remember his regular I, name. I just lucked, I just lucked out. Get out. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> oh, gee, you are always so forgiving. Okay, I'm ready. All right. So, we're going to be featuring Patricia's interview with Paul Carnegie. Paul mm-hmm. one of the last sound effects men of the Golden Days of Radio. With WWXYZ, the last voice of Cato on the Radio Green Hornet. And we had about 45 minutes with him. And so, Patricia covered a lot of good territory. Yeah, and I loved his end. <laughs> there were two questions yeah. there. Oh, no, I... I asked him a question, and his answer was, I don't know, I have to go. <laughs> so I hope we can have him back fairly soon. He was, you know, he had great information, but he had a sense of humor. That, well, I know the poor man had to go because I tend to take everything I can get, <laughs> and I got too much. <laughs> so, so that was his comment. I don't know, and I have to go. <laughs> Okay. All right, Patricia. I will talk to you soon, my dear. Oh, thank you. Good night, everybody. Good night, Walden. Good night, Patricia. All right, family. We're going to walk over and start the interview. So, please come on. Jaws Professional 03172017 Windows M Desktop Folder M Miscellaneous M My Documents Enter Docket Woody Herman Parkey Patricia Frist PC on Patricia 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 Paul Carnegie Interview Saturday Paul Carnegie Interview Unloading Jaws Can't OK Enter Doc. Hi everybody I'm Walden Hughes and hello Patricia Hello, Walden. Uh, this is going to be a really special thing for me, and I, I can't wait. Anyone who listens to us on Saturdays knows how much I love, respect, and enjoy the sound effects people. They just added everything to the show, and I've been fascinated with it for so long. And guess what? We have Paul Carnegie with us, 
who was a sound effects man or a sound man, I learned that, and we'll get to the women before we get to the end of the list, Paul Carnegie, who was the sound effects person for many of the XYZ programs. We know the Lone Ranger started there, and we had Fred Foy. Maybe I should ask you about Fred Foy, too. Um, Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, the Green Hornet. Um, he, he was just all over the place and in uh, the XYZ studio. So we're going to talk about sound effects tonight, and I just love it. Paul, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. I appreciate having the chance to talk to you. It's a lot of fun to talk about sound effects, and I mean, let's face it, most of us love to talk about ourselves, and I'm no exception. So. <laughs> That's great. Paul, you have got such a rich, vibrant voice. Did you ever do any um, acting in front of the microphone? Well, very limited. As a matter of fact, I did some acting. If you want to call it that, I read a few lines uh, for uh, 26 programs, as a matter of fact. Mm. And those 26 programs were the last 13 weeks that the Green Hornet was on the air. Okay, and because it was on twice a week. And uh, I had the pleasure, and in fact, at my age, I was scared to death to do it, but I did it. I, I was Cato on the Green Hornet for the last uh, 13 weeks of the, of the run of the Green Hornet program. Interesting. Now, was that the, the only experience that you had in front of the microphone? I can't imagine that it was. Well, in that respect, and then, you know, after that, I left and found other things to do and then got back into the radio business and was very active in radio in Detroit. Uh, you know, worked at several different stations and stations in the area, and notably, people that may be out there in your particular neck of the woods would not be aware of it, but I worked for a station, WKNR, in Detroit was Keener 13, mm-hmm. and we that was from the, in the 60s. Uh, we were a top 40 station. Actually, we played 31. That was our top 31 plus some album cuts, and it was the number one station for a long, long time in Detroit. Uh, big, big, important, you know, fun thing to do at a fun time in the radio business in the 60s in Detroit. Who could ask for anything more because we had Motown there, you know? Oh, yes. And, of course, that was the Beatles' time, too. So it was the heyday, if you will, of of rock and roll. And so even to this day, you know, there are stations all over the country that play oldies, you know, and that's what they're playing, much of the stuff from the 60s. So uh, I was on the air there, and I was the program director also at at WKNR in Detroit Mm -hmm. uh, until 1970. And then uh, I, I had some partners. We actually uh, had the, the, the great time of building a radio station in Peoria, Illinois, where I still happen to be living, actually in East Peoria. And I put a station on the air, and we operated that station for several years and before we sold it. So, yeah. And then I've done a lot of you know voiceovers and things like that uh, in the area. Uh, you know, Peoria is the home, at least for a while, is going to be the home of uh, Caterpillar tractor company and so i've done quite a bit of work for tractor describing how these machines work and things like that so yeah yeah i've been on the air quite a bit it's like it my gosh i wish i were there with a pencil walking behind you oh my goodness you i mean really walden will tell you the truth on this that every once in a while i say oh walden we have to talk with someone from the sound effects area and he he found you i am just so delighted we are talking with paul carnegie who is an old-time radio sound effects man um, and many other things. I think I'll have to, you know, he, just, he just did everything. Our family, who listens to us on Saturday nights, 
knows the Lone Ranger back and forth, loves Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, can give you Green Hornet information from beginning to end, so you are very much in familiar territory here for us. We are not able to take phone calls because this is being pre-recorded. This is not a live um, interview. So what you'll have to do for our listeners, if you have questions, send them to me, and I'll give you my address at the end, and I will pass them on to Paul. Is that good? I look forward to that. Oh, good. Okay. Tell me how you began your career as a sound effects (laughs) artist and when. There's quite a story here, you know. Okay. Sometimes it, it just happens to know the you have to know the right people, the right things happen to you. Um, I lived in Detroit. Um, as a matter of fact, when I graduated from high school, my first job out of the high school was in radio for a very short period of time. Uh, you know, 17 years old out of high school and trying to do a morning show and couldn't get up in the morning, so I got fired. And so I, I that was at WHLS in Port Huron. Came back home. Uh, just for a week or two, and my girlfriend, who had actually just lived up the street from me, she said, "She said, you know, my my dad was talking with Fred Wolf's wife. Now, her dad was a podiatrist. Fred Wolf was the morning DJ at WXYZ, and Fred Wolf's wife was a patient of of the, of the doctor, and she had told the doctor, and he had passed on to his daughter that." Fred Wolf was a little upset because his record spinner had been drafted to go in the Army. Hmm. Now, at that time, DJs didn't play their own records. They actually had somebody who played the records for them, the record spinner, who also played the commercials and all the things that were part of the morning program. He was being drafted. So there's a potential job at WXYZ. I immediately went down to WXYZ uninvited, met the program director, introduced myself, and said, I'd like to apply for that job. He said, well, I'm sorry. That job has been taken by our office messenger. Would you like that job? Well, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. You know, foot in the door type of thing. Sure. Well, WXYZ at that time, actually, the radio station was not where the main office was. All the bookkeeping and all the other things was done at a building in downtown Detroit. So my job was to, twice a day, to take all the information from the studio to the office and pick up the stuff from the office and bring it back to the, to the radio station. WXYZ also had a TV station. They had a messenger from the TV station also who ran back and forth. So here I am at WXYZ where they do the Lone Ranger program and Sergeant Preston. And that's where all the actors were. And the way the building was set up, it had... Actually, the building was originally a big mansion, the Mendelssohn Mansion, giant building with rooms all over the place that became various studios and offices and what have you. And downstairs in the basement was the the lobby, pardon me, the the lounge, if you want to call it that, (laughs) where the actors spent their time between rehearsals and what have you, because the the Lone Ranger program was an all-day affair. It started early at like 11 o'clock in the morning, and it went on all day long with rehearsals and what have you, and then break for, for, for dinner before the program. And so I was there rubbing shoulders all the time with the actors and with Chuck Livingston, Charles D. Livingston, who, of course, you know, was the director of the Lone Ranger program. And what happened, I was there for a couple of months in that particular job, and lo and behold, it was Korean War's time, wartime. I hadn't been drafted yet, but anyhow, 
one of the sound effects men for the Lone Ranger was drafted. And here, who's got his hand up right here saying, me, 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 I'd like to take that job. Chuck said, okay, you want the job, it's yours. So I became a sound effects man, if you will, for the Lone Ranger program. And that was how I got into that particular, you know, job at that particular station. Uh-huh. When was that, Paul? Yeah, it was fun, you know, and that's the thing, as they say, at that time I was 18, a pretty exciting time for an 18-year-old to be, you know, involved in the Oh, my the gosh, Lone for 108 years, 108 years old, it would have been exciting. Paul, do you recall what time period, because the, the Lone Ranger ran forever. We're in that time When, when was I there? Okay, uh -huh. 1950 to 1952. Okay. okay. Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> Is that uh, how you got into this? Uh, Kismet plays a huge role in some things, but my goodness, you were there. That pick me, pick me. I, I am too cool for you to pass up. Um, would you describe a typical sound effects area in the studio? Sure, sure, I'd be happy to. In that particular situation, whether it's typical or not, it was the way we did it, and we always liked to brag, and we did get recognition that the sound effects that we did were really well done. And I will tell you, there is something that I found amazing, and even to this day, I am just totally amazed by the perfection, if you will, that of, of every single production that was ever done there by, by the Trendle Company, you know, Trendle mm -hmm. Muir, what have you, Trendle Campbell Muir, uh, the Ranger, all those, with the actors, with the sound effects department. I mean, we didn't make mistakes. You know, it, was just, it was just perfection every single time. Uh, the way that was set up, the building was a, a mansion. We were in what I think has been the library of, of the building, a very large uh, room with big, big drapes, uh, carpeting. The microphone was one microphone for the actors, was suspended in the middle of the room, right hanging down. And adjacent to that was another room that was the sound effects room. It had been the conservatory or some such thing, had that uh, glass block. And between the two rooms was a little hallway with a door at each end. And all the sound effects that were done in, in terms of horses, buggies, rain, and uh, steps, things like that, were all done in that particular studio. Uh, there were four sound effects men, well, three actually there all the time. Now, they were the, I was the fourth. And I went between that room and the studio. I was responsible for studio effects also, which were things like had to be coordinated with the actors so that their efforts and my sound were coordinated. Like the proverbial, here comes the big fight, and the punch, the sock on the jaw, mm -hmm. I had to make the sock on the jaw sound at the, at that, you know, to coordinate with the effort of the Lone Ranger going, and the bang at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, handcuffs, things like that. I, you know, when, if it was anything, anything like that where there was sound we had to coordinate, that was my job. And then when it was time for horse hooves, I would go into the sound effects room to join the other three who were in there, and we would do the horse hooves and things of that particular nature. That's the way it was set up. The room in between, the little hallway I mentioned, had a door at both ends. There was a, a, a large door at the sound effects end that was used not so much on the Ranger program because of the time of the year, but uh, for, like for other programs, like even, like even with the Green Horn, a door that was the door sound that we used. It was a full-size door. Mm -hmm. And at the studio end of the little hallway were two was 
sound effects and in radio, let's put it in that context, you know, the sound, the, the action is on mic or off mic, right? So the actors would be talking, potentially there would be sound in the background off mic. So if there was a door in question, the way we had to do this to make it sound just right, if the door was off mic, then that large door would be opened so that the sound of the door at the little end of the other little hallway would be picked up by the microphone in the actor's studio. If it was a the micro, if the door was on mic, I would close the big door so that there'd be no sound coming into the actor's microphone. Does that make any sense to you? It does, and Good. it's scaring me. <laughs> okay. And so my job, I had to make sure that door was opened or closed or whatever. That's one of the yeah. things I had to do, you know. And you were physically apart from the actors who were, of course, working from scripts. Did you work from scripts also? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Script. Sure. Um, sorry, oh, sure. I'm starting to feel a little bit better yeah, here. I had to know what to do. And right underneath the microphone, as a matter of fact, I mentioned this, that's pretty important. There was a little table, and I would put my script on that table, if I had to do sound effects, because like uh-huh. if I had to sock somebody in the jaw, I couldn't hold on to a script at the same time. So I'd put my, my, I'd put my script on that table, and I'd do my sound effects and pick up my, my script and do whatever I had to do. I'm a little, little anecdote, a little fun thing that yeah. people find fascinating. One of my jobs uh-huh. as the studio sound man related to Tonto. <laughs> okay. Tonto was John Todd, as you well know. Yes. Right? And John Todd, in the early 50s, was no kid. He was, I think, in his 70s at that particular time. And the way the studio was set up, in one corner, Grace Beamer, and the opposite corner was John Todd. They each had their chair in, each, in, a, in opposite corners because they always worked across from each other. Right? Mm-hmm. They were always in that relationship. Well, John, sometimes between the, the various scenes he had to be in, would doze off literally would fall asleep. <laughs> One of my jobs was to make sure John was awake to do his lines. <laughs> okay. okay. On, on my script, I would have, you know, written in, like on the page before, John, to make sure that he was up for the, for the next oh, page. Oh, gosh, that, that's funny. Now, I, a, a lot of people counted on you for doing this because if he were asleep through his lines... It wouldn't be very good. It would not be good at all. Like I said, no mistakes. The, it would interrupt everything. Now, in case you're interested, and I bet you are, about oh, yes. the sound effects, of course, that, you know, the the sounds of the horse hooves mm-hmm. was something that was a certain cadence that had to be created. And I had, it takes a while. It took me a couple of weeks, literally, to get the cadence of, of the horse hoof to be exactly right. Mm-hmm. And we had this large box, if you will, with dirt in it, and we used it. In each hand, we each had two plungers, little small plungers. You've seen them, I'm sure, you know, toilet plungers. Sure. That's what we used for the horse hooves. And we had coconuts cut in half that we would use if we were going across like a uh, stony type of situation. So we'd mm-hmm. have that, that kind of sound. We used coconuts to create that sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, rain was a fun one, too. We actually had a bathtub in, in the sound effects <laughs> room. And in the bathtub, we had we had... some boxes and on the boxes we would put newspaper and we had suspended above the boxes on a a rack was one of these old-fashioned bathroom uh, shower type things with the rubber hose and and the big head 
Uh-huh. And we would turn that on, and the water would fall on the newspapers. It would give it that sound of rain falling. And then there would be a dripping sound off the side, so it actually would sound like, you know, the real thing. And it was really like rain, if you will. That was the way we created the yeah. sound of, of rain to get the, the best water reads instead of using records for things, things like that. How about thunder that went along with the rain? Now, there was also a record. There was a guy also, one of our sound effects men was actually in the control room with uh, Chuck Livingston, and he did all the recorded sound. And, and so we actually had five of us doing sound, and he was doing the recording. He's the one who would have the music going, the gunshots, and a few other things that, that had, like the bugle when the, when the cavalry was coming up on mm-hmm. to save everybody. That was, that was his job. And a man named Fred Flowerday was the assistant director, he would also help on occasion with, uh, the, because sometimes it'd be too much to do for one man. He had five turntables to work with, and that still, he'd have to have two people up there doing the recorded stuff to keep the music going and what have you. And back time it, too. Like the music for the themes had to be what they call back timed. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, you know it's going to end at a certain time. You had to start it at exactly at a certain time. So that Fred would do that more often than not. He'd have the music queued up and then exactly the right second start the record for the music wow. even though it wasn't on the air necessarily <laughs> that's incredible um i have two questions i don't want to leave the studio hallway i wrote down a note on that and then we started talking about the really interesting stuff that followed okay. the hallway makes me think that the sound effects people except for you because you were running back and forth that the sound effects team in the studio at the end of that little hallway could not see the actors. Oh, no, we couldn't see the actors at all. When we were in the sound room, we couldn't see the actors at all. No, we didn't see them. Now, that little hallway was also used for crowd noises in the background. Ah, okay. Some of the actors, would, we'd go, I'd go in there, too, with them, you know, and we'd be, we'd be talking about, you know, whatever, like, sounded appropriate. You know, this was far, some of the sound for, like, the tavern or what have you. Mm-hmm. We'd, we'd be in a little hallway off mic. Right? But no, we, the other, we could never see, when we were in the sound room, we could not see the actors at all. Didn't have, didn't have to see them. Because I was in the studio to work with them as necessary. Uh-huh. My goodness. So My the horses, goodness. like Chuck Living, we knew from what was going on. Uh-huh. We had, you know, the, the two of them actually had earphones so they could hear what was being done. Okay. You know, they actually heard what was happening. Okay. And, you know, we'd watch Chuck Livingston for cues, too, you know, do this, do that at a certain uh-huh. time. Okay. And he, we could see him because where he sat, he could see into the sound room, he could see into the actor's studio. Oh, he had, the, he had the bird's eye seat. He had a bird's eye seat, exactly. Got it. Okay. You're answering a couple of my questions before I even get to ask them. This is great. Um, and you're putting them in better order than I had them. Um, Paul, just a comment in here. You had, and the other members of the team, had a tremendous responsibility to enhance or propel a show with sound that was realistic. It had to create an image in people's minds. Yes, well, that's what they call radio, right? Studio of the mind or the theater of the mind, whatever it is. The theater of the mind, yes. Now, that's a tremendous responsibility. Um, I'm not telling you anything new, but as an outsider, it just boggles my mind that something, that a misstep in the sound effect can affect the entire show that's going to be recorded that day or is being recorded that day or delivered live. No, we didn't record anything. Everything this was, was live. all live. Okay. I'll wow. tell you something, too, that 
people find very unusual and, and, and just surprising. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, which was Lone Ranger days, mm-hmm. we did two Lone Ranger programs. What, she says? Yeah. We did two. Yes. We were in Eastern Time in Detroit at 7 o'clock until 7.29.30. We did a program without sponsorship. The opening was just music. That'd be the, you know, the Fred would do his thing. Uh-huh. There'd be a music interlude. And then in the middle of the program, there'd be a music interlude. And near the end, a music interlude. And those were recorded. Okay. And those were sold to stations that did not have a network attachment or network affiliation. And they could insert local advertising in uh-huh. those times of the music interlude. How so we'd, we'd do that program. We'd have a 30-second break. Uh-huh. And at exactly okay. 7.30, boom, 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 we start all over again, do the whole all thing all over, over again. again. Now, there was a minor difference in the timing of the programs because the commercial program was different than the non-commercial program. So when we're doing our, the original rehearsals, as far as time is concerned, what Chuck would do is figure out how much time he had to make difference, and we would cut out a few lines and maybe a, a part of a scene for the second program to give it more time for commercials and what have mm-hmm. you. So we'd have this boxed out, and we'd... And the first program, we do all of it. Second program, we'd scratch off these various parts of the, of the, of the, the script and do a, do a slightly different show. Mm-hmm. Was, this, was the, or I was going to say the script writers or the script writer in the studio with you so that the lines would no, already no, be? No, 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 they, no. He was not. If there was any changes, they were right there in the building. They were up, upstairs on the second floor during rehearsals. Uh-huh. If there was something we needed, you know, some more, we need a couple more uh, lines for this scene or what have you, we need more uh-huh. to, to fill it out, we just go, up, they go upstairs and say, uh, to, you know, whomever, Tom Dougal or, what was it, McCarthy was another one. Uh, several different writers whose names I can't remember right now. It would, they would be right there. And, of course, um, um, who was the boss writer? They'll help me with this. Frank Stryker. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> He was there, too, so we had somebody who could write some things in, but they didn't to, to, to oversee the program. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was Chuck Livingston. That was his job, and he did it. I was just wondering, Paul, why didn't you have two separate scripts? If you had the one for the recorded show, wouldn't it have been easier to have a second script marked up for the, the uh, no. commercial? No, they, they, if it was easier, no one thought of doing it that way. Okay. It was easier <laughs> just to have... On this particular page, we take out, you know, this part and just uh-huh. scratch it off. Uh-huh. It, was, it was fine. You know, we had that way, no, not so much paper anyhow to deal with. But you wouldn't get the wrong script because you had it right in front of you, you know. Yeah. yeah. And, and, all and the scripts were all uh, on legal-sized paper. Ah, interesting. They were 14-inch. <laughs> if you lost one of them, you lost half your show. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. In fact, that was one of our jobs in the sound department. We had to actually to uh, mimeograph the, uh, uh, the scripts. We would wow. come in in the morning, and that's one of the things we would do is make sure all the scripts were ready and everything. And um, as I mentioned, it was an all-day project because there was, there was rehearsals and rehearsals. And, mm-hmm. you know, so. Would the sound effects ever have its own little label, like this is for the Green Hornet door, or this is the uh, 
the wind that we used for the charge and press. And did you have a little marking just in case you didn't mix them up in a different show? Or I didn't understand the question. I'm sorry. What, what was the question? Well, did you have little markings under certain sound effects? In other words, the, the, the green hornet had that, the black beauty had that thud, that certain, when they, when, when they closed the door and when the black beauty took away, went off. The, we had a car door. For yeah. And then when, on Sergeant and Preston, the opening always had this big win. That was recorded. And so, with the, with the different, the, so those had a unique sound. What, did they have markings saying, this is only used for Sergeant and Preston? This is only you for the Green Hornet. Or uh, you, you guys didn't break it down into different shows. Yeah, well, the wind was, was done via recording. Mm -hmm. uh, as you well know, the footsteps in the snow, you know, that's done by. Right. 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 Starch in a box, in a, in, in a little bag, right? Right. Is that what you use? That's what we did, too, you know. Right. It's like a canvas bag with starch, uh, with, uh, scar starch in it. We would squeeze the bag to give it that particular step. And, uh, you know, we were sometimes given jobs to, to create sounds. I can't remember anything right now very specific except for one occasion. But what we would do, if something came up, something new and different, we would work on it, create it, and then we'd tell Chuck Livingston, Chuck, we've got it. Give it see what you think. He would not watch us. He would cover his eyes. Okay. And let us do the sound. And he'd say, yep, okay, or nope, I don't like it. But he wouldn't watch us because he didn't want what he saw to influence his, his hearing or his perception or the sounds of it. So if you had to build something, would somebody go out and buy the material? Would they be down? What? We never really had to do anything like that. Uh -huh. I remember one time we were trying to create chopping ice. And we weren't happy with what we, I forget what we were using. We actually, it was during the winter, we went down to the Detroit River and got some ice. <laughs> and it didn't sound right. <laughs> and it was the real thing. Well, yeah, that, that could be the case, you know, <laughs> because it's what you hear, not what we're doing, but what yes, do you hear? Yes. What does it sound so like? So for that particular one, Paul, how did you solve that problem? What did you come up with? I don't remember. Oh, you know, yeah. I said, remember I said 1950, 1952. Yes, yes. But you know, some things stand out in people's minds, so I never miss an opportunity to ask. Yeah, you say right, next yeah. questions, that's fine. But I think about how long ago that was, and I think about the people I work with. Sometimes I wonder if there's anybody left who you know, did things with me, you know, wow. or, or ever around that time. Certainly Not too no, many. Certainly nobody with your voice. My goodness. Um <laughs> I'm picturing you as the Lone Ranger here. Well, and interestingly like enough, you know, my hero at that particular time was Fred Foy, obviously, uh, you know. Yes. And so, in fact, we were, uh, just just a year ago, we were at the showcase, and I had the, the chance to do some announcing, and someone said something, and I said, well, you know, I, I spent a couple of years standing right alongside of Fred Foy, so I had a pretty good model of what to do and how to sound, you know. Uh -huh. Well, we had an opportunity, or Walden did many times, I had one, opportunity to talk with Fred Foy and his place, uh, especially on the Lone Ranger, and that was great fun as well. So you're talking about someone who we're familiar with, and that's great fun for us to hear as well. Paul, until I started digging around for information, I had the outlandish notion <laughs> 
that all sound effects were provided by one single person. Hello. Um, and I knew that some commercial recordings were used, but I also read one of Bob Mott's books who said that the commercial sound effects were not necessarily in any decent order, so that if the sound effects person wasn't familiar with the recordings, we might hear something like a train going through somebody's kitchen that should have been sizzling bacon. Is, is that a correct perception? What was the, what was the, the idea of a train doing what again? That it's, um, if the sound effects person or the sound effects record was so discombobulated in terms of how the sequence of the sounds that were produced, if the sound effects man was not on top of where a train was, for example, and yeah, dropped, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, could, he could dropped the wrong, could, could somebody the make a mistake? Yeah, yes, yeah. of course, you know, but again, I, I, I go back to what I said near, near the beginning of our conversation. Didn't happen. Did not happen. I, you know, I just can't recall hardly ever anything not being exactly the way it was. Once in a while, a, an actor might not say something totally clearly, you know, but other than that, we, we just didn't have, have those problems. Uh, everybody was, you know, rehearsed did their job, experienced, mm -hmm. that's something else, too. When you do this so many times a week for, for a long, long time, you get it down really well, you know. And like, just the, there could be a mistake, but it, it just didn't happen. And again, we had people in the control room, like I mentioned. We had Bill Hanks to Beck, the sound effects man. He was the recorded sound effects guy in Flower Day, and they took care. Uh, and you can't really make a mistake like that. Just it's not permitted. <laughs> so we didn't do it. <laughs> Charles no, Anderson would kill anyway. <laughs> somebody. Literally, he would beat them to death if they made any serious. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I, I guess so. With that, he, he, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but boy, if things weren't exactly the way he wanted it, you know, even if we did a sound that was, was not the way he thought it should have been, mm -hmm. he'd give us a look like, mm, you know. Work on that, guys. That so. is fun. Now, but I'm no, there was, it, yeah. in our business, it took five sound effects men to produce the Lone Ranger sound effect. Wow. Uh, and you did two, uh, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, you did two shows. Is yes. that correct? Well, yes. uh, of course, because you had to record the one that provided room for the commercials, and yes. the other one was strictly sustained. Yes. So the, okay. the, the first one was sustained. The second yeah. one was commercial. Right. Yeah. Wow. And they were, you know, see, they, they were both done live. But the first one was recorded for use by uh, later on, you know, mm -hmm. for, uh, for other stations. And, wow, you slept and, well that night. And, and talking about you know doing sound effects too, like the horses had to be done live, could not be done on on a record, because you couldn't start them, you couldn't stop them, you couldn't yeah. go change the gait of them, because you know when when a horse is is moving, he, he, there's different gates. We had, mm -hmm. we had actually we had a walking. We had him galloping, we had him trotting, we had him actually out and out running. So you'd have to have all these variables: the horse, you know, starting up and going, and then whoa, 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 and boom, the horse hoof stopping, and then this had to be done live. There's no way to get away from it. All right. Now the next one might be the same answer as you just gave me for the train going through the kitchen, but um, was there ever a time? that one of you had to cover for someone who didn't make it back from a break or got stuck in the bathroom, anything like that? No, 
never happened. Never happened? No, never happened, no. My because, goodness. No. Well, we were right there, you know. Then yes. Downstairs yes. and upstairs. And everybody had to be, and well, these were professionals. These people have done this. Pro- this was the, a, a group of people who have been doing these programs for the most part for how many years? From the 30s at that point to the 50s, you know, for close to 20 years. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty much the same people. They knew they had their responsibilities. They're professionals. And uh, again, I reiterate, things just went the way they were supposed to 100% of the time. Well, the show surely reflected that. There, there. I cannot pick up. I mean, 3,000 shows is a lot to listen to, but for all of the shows that I've listened to for The Green Hornet and The Lone Ranger especially, I never came across anything that would make people want to roll their eyes and say, uh-oh, no, no, I didn't no. do that well. I mean, it, well, it really sounded you know, we, like... We prided ourselves, in, again, at being professionals, even though I started you know, doing this when I was just a kid. Uh-huh. Uh, I was surrounded by these people, so through osmosis, if nothing else, I had to adapt, you know, adapt yeah. and adapt. Yeah, and of course you were familiar with everything that was going on in that particular studio. Sure, oh my goodness, sure. you had a leg up on anybody who was walking in cold. <laughs> exactly. My gosh. Okay, I want to know. Well, let me let me tell people first that we are talking with um, Paul Carnegie, who was an old time radio sound effects man. That was not all he did, but that's what we're talking about today. And he worked for. Um, station xyz so that means that he did lone ranger sergeant preston the green hornet and he was also cato at the end of the green hornet series and that's a fun show i really like that one um so here we are with paul carnegie and i love sound effects so i'm going to keep him for dinner Tell me the kinds of cues that you in the sound effects area might have gotten from your director I guess that was the Livingston, right? Whoa. I'm trying to think. Um, for the life of me, I'm having a problem thinking of that because um, as a sound sound department, well, like the horses, for instance, we would mm-hmm. get a, a cue on that. The music would fade down. He would give us a cue for the horses to, to, to begin. Okay. Now, sometimes they would do a fade-in. Uh, you know, the engineer. There was another party who was the engineer mm-hmm. who actually controlled the microphones. He'd turn them on, turn them off, you know, bring our microphone up, turn our microphone down, things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, so actually he was he was there in the control room also. Uh, there may be that occasion where we were all set to go, and he'd give us the cue, and we'd start the hoos-hoos, and they'd maybe fade them in, fade them out. He, okay. You know, that, and he could give us the cut that we don't have to do it anymore, you know, that we're done. You know, okay. All and, right. Well, things like that. That sounds reasonable. I was having a panic attack thinking that you're in a different room from from the actor's recording, and you're making it sound easier than my heart. Um, <laughs> I was really nervous. <laughs> I thank you for that, and everybody was perfection. I have some sound effects that I would like you to tell me how they were accomplished. Okay. Whether that it's you be too or difficult. They, Go ahead. Well, you know, some are attributed to the engineer. Some are... are over with you, and you've covered some of that already. Um, with the background crowds, you said you would gather together and <laughs> not right. say any we, bad we'd words. We'd be in, in the little, little hallway, right? Yes, like yes. A, like a yeah. sound lot type situation. Yeah. Uh-huh. That was the crowd noise. How many would, if, if we had, for example, a posse coming through, now sometimes posses were pretty large, how would you make a sound for a posse? 
spot. What kind of sound are you talking about? Well, uh, you know, if they were, okay, come on, man, let's go, we're going to get them. And oh, the, 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 all the actors, the, the actors. The actors would do that. Every show had half a dozen people at least, you know, maybe more. Okay, okay, so they, they would handle being the posse members. Yeah, yeah them, all the know. actors would be the posse, whatever necessary. Sure. Okay. Uh, you already talked about the horses, and that was really cool. Um, and especially the fade in and fade out with the horses, because sometimes we'll listen to a program and suddenly the posse is there. We didn't hear them coming. Suddenly they were in the front of the, <laughs> the bar or the house. It's like, wait a minute, how did those guys Well, they would, they would be like a, a music interlude would come up, and then the horses would be coming up out of that music interlude because they're not yes. just going to start yes. cold. You know. So there, there had to be a bit of a transition there. Yeah. It just didn't show up in front of somebody's living room. How about explosions? Who handled the sound? Yeah, those, that was recorded. Those were pre-recorded. Sure. How about gunshots? Gunshots recorded. Mm -hmm. They were recorded, too. Interesting. Yep. Um, we, now, are we talking about my time or earlier, you know? Whenever. You know that they used to use all kinds of different things that never quite sounded like gunshots, but finally it, it got to the point where recorded gunshots just sounded right, and they yeah. were. What did they sound like before? Well, you know, <laughs> there was the situation where they would take, like, a yardstick and hit a leather chair. Okay. Boom, you know, it would make a smacking sound. That was like mm -hmm. a, 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 a gunshot. And there's all different kinds of things that have been done way back in the, in the, 30, in the 20s and the 30s and things yeah. like that. But we had progressed beyond that. Interesting. Like thunder was recorded also. You know, we didn't rattle a big piece of metal or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But they did it one time? What's that? Did they do that at one time where they... It, it was, it, whatever it was thunder, it would be a recorded yeah. sound. Right? Yes, okay. The things that were just outside, you know, we, we didn't create a lot of sounds because they, we didn't have to at that particular point. Somebody had already done that, you know. There was a whole library full of sounds. Uh-huh. And there was and a company that produced records. somebody like the engineer records, knowing what he was pulling. I didn't hear that. Pardon me? I said that it, it, you had to have someone like the engineer in the studio or as part of... Yeah, that of was our, our fifth sound effects man. Your fifth the, sound yeah. effects man who yeah, knew what right. he was doing or you would be toast. Right, exactly, like I said. And, and he would have help from the assistant director also uh -huh. as necessary. Well, that raises the question of how people were interviewed, screened, their work evaluated. Um, you know, an engineer is not somebody you pull off the street and say, go make sound effects. Well, that's what they did with me, but <laughs> the fellow, the fellow who, who did the recorded sound effects was one with the, with the most seniority, if you will, because that's uh -huh. the way it worked, you know. Uh, the, the person who had the experience, and then uh, you, you, know, you just learn your job. Yeah. You, know, you practice uh, as best you can. Um, what I mentioned way back early in this, this, this discussion here that we talked about finding the, the job, the record spinner thing, mm -hmm. um, uh, and Fred Wolf, the, the, the DJ, when I was the office messenger, there was a, a two-week period where his, his record spinner went on vacation, and I had to fill in for him. Uh, it was pretty traumatic because he had all kinds of gimmicks and everything, but, you know, you just, you just do what you have to do, you know, play the music, play the commercials, play the yeah. gimmicks, and, and hope for the best. Yeah. So. Well, I'm thinking that you were an exception to the entry into sound effects because you were so familiar with the studio, you were familiar with the actors and the sound effects people, and you, you showed up with a bundle of experience that you could build on very quickly. How did the others begin? The other sound effects, ma'am? Yes, please. 
I don't know. Well, I, I don't know how that happened, to tell you the truth. Okay. But if the <laughs> the actors, I know, were all professional actors. You know, yeah. They, they, now, some of them, the actors, had been sound effects men. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, Jimmy Fletcher and Ernie Winstanley. Uh-huh. Who, I don't know if you know the names or not, but they, they were they were the actors on The Ranger and... Yeah, Ernie was one of the early Dan Reeds, for example, Patricia, and just, you know, the different guys moved around. You mm-hmm. bet. Yeah. That's really so interesting. It, you know, they sort of graduated to the job is what happened. They graduated to the job. My gosh, yeah. I'm, I'm just astounded at the and sound effects. That's like I did. You know, I graduated graduating. from the sound effects into the Cato part. So yeah. That's the way it worked. Wow. Because the part was available, and uh, whoop, here I am. Hold up and my hand. you are. That is really wonderful. One of our listeners asked one night about phones in a show, especially Johnny Dollar on the confident you're familiar with Johnny Dollar. Whenever somebody hung up on him, we often heard him yell, hello, hello, and then click the plunger several times, hello, hello. <laughs> I mean, you knew the guy hung up on the other end, and of course that never worked to say hello, hello, but sometimes the operator got on. How, how did that dovetail with the side effects? Why, did th- why was that important to a show? I'm not sure if I really know what you're speaking about, so I can't help you well, with that. Um, I, I will tell you something. I thought you were talking about an echo type effect. Um, I would say something that we had that was really, we actually had an echo chamber. Oh, really? We had, in, in the basement of the building, there was a little, uh, actually a hallway, but real low ceiling, only about four feet high, that went about six feet. The hallway turned, went about 30 feet. The hallway turned again, went about six feet more. And at one end was the microphone, at the other end was the speaker. And when we needed this echoey, like in a cave type of effect, oh, yeah. they would turn the microphone on uh, and so that the actor's voice would come on the speaker and be picked up by the microphone at the other end of the, of the, uh, the chamber. So actually, we actually had like a little cavern to create that sound of a cave. That's if you could amazing. picture this in your mind. You had... You had a sound effects and recording studio mansion. No, this was actually uh, in the basement. This is what we yes. used to create the sounds of uh, somebody being in a cave effect. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking each time you, you tell me something like this, you've added another space from the mansion. And I'm thinking this whole thing must have been wired for sound. This is really great. Um, tell me what the most interesting sound effect you came across or had to create. Or do? I'm struggling. I'm failing in my struggles. No, 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 because I Yes, I it. am. I am. <laughs> uh, number two, that's number one. Number two, I can't think of anything. And number number two, I'm going to have to say thank you for this interview. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Paul. Oh, Paul, thank you okay. so much. I hope you'll be able to come back and join us again. <laughs> I would look forward to it. Take care, Paul. Thank much. you so much. Bye-bye. Okay, great. automation system, everybody. Be our next big breakthrough.
JAWS Professional Documents Document Alt Tab 0317 Alt Tab Sound Forge Pro Escape